Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Chad here with Iraq Veteran 8888. Today we have another gun gripe episode for you. We are posing one doozy of a question. Can the NFA be repealed? Wow. Mm. This is quite a question. And I know that you always see all these memes and people talking on the internet, you know, repeal the NFA. And, and it sounds like, you know, such a great idea. And we all want to see it go away. And we want to see our rights be completely restored to 100% constitutional wording. Uh, we're going to go over a bunch of stuff in this video. And I think you might come away with some interesting knowledge, maybe some things that you weren't aware of. Of and uh, we'll get into this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get started today, I want to thank our friends at Arkin Optics. I don't know if you're familiar with what they do. They make some great optics that come in at a great price point. Um, he is a former Navy SEAL sniper and has put a lot of his experience into these optics. And it's also obviously a veteran-owned company, um, but they come in at a great budget price point, but with a lot of high-end features, first focal plane, real tactile adjustments, uh, zero-stop turrets, really good construction. Uh, we've got some videos we've done on his optics before. I think you'd be really impressed with them. Uh, check them out, our friends at Arkin Optics, and tell them that we sent you over from Gun Gripes. So, all right, look, a little disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this was going to be a little little time, okay? Um, going to take a little time to get through. So you might want to grab your hat that's got, like, the two drink holders on it, you know? And you might have to have some popcorn, some pistachios, some little uh, meat snacks. Man, snacks. I'm not going to lie. You know, you might hear my tummy grumble oh, in this man. video because I'm a little hungry right now. But well, I'm those. a little hungry for some Second Amendment action, all right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of these infringements, and I think everyone is. And we have to kind of pose the question, well, where did all this kind of come from, right? Why do we have the NFA? Mm. Um, it kind of goes back. Let, let's start maybe with um, Miller uh, versus U.S. versus Miller. And we are not legal experts. We are just a couple of uncouth rednecks uh, with, with too the much internet. time on our hands. Too much time on our hands and access to the internet. Oh my! Oh yeah. I mean, you you let these boobless rubes here get you know access to the internet. All kind of things happen, right? But it does pose a question. You know, we we've always wondered, like, well. Why is there not some legal challenge uh, to this? And people go, all right, well, if a legal challenge would exist to the NFA, where would it come from? Um, what Supreme Court cases uh, would you use as support uh, for your position, for one? So we know the Supreme Court cases are very, very high cases, right? You know, the highest court is the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court cases hold the highest legal weight over any lower court district courts, things like that. Um, Now, we know that the Constitution is the ultimate law of the land, period, uh, that any any law that supersedes the Constitution is no law. And, of course, the language of the Second Amendment is pretty clear, right? You know, shall not be infringed. That's pretty clear constitutional language. And I know we always say, shall not be infringed, repeal the NFA, you know, butt my guns. I get it. But at the end of the day, how do you articulate it in a way that presents an actual real case that you can now go, all right, Supreme Court, what about this? And that's what we want to pose here. Like, how does the NFA get repealed? What does that process look like? Um, Is it possible? I suppose that's what we want to look at. So let's start out with um, U.S. versus Miller. All right, this involves a uh, a sawed-off shotgun. (laughs) It's just kind of where it started more or less, right? Mm -hmm. So... You Go ahead. All right. So an Arkansas federal district court charged Jack Miller and Frank Layton with violating the National Firearms Act. Uh, this case was argued in 1939, so shortly after the NFA was instituted. Right. Um, when they transported a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun in interstate commerce, Miller and Layton argued that the NFA violated their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. The district court agreed and dismissed the case. However, the Supreme Court unanimously decided that they were going to reverse the district court, holding that the Second Amendment does not guarantee an individual the right to keep and bear a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun. Um, Writing for the unanimous court, Justice James Clark McReynolds reasoned that because possessing a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun does not have a reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, the Second Amendment does not protect the possession of such an instrument. Interesting. Interesting. So when we look at, um, you know, this particular comment here uh, from Justice McReynolds, all right, at first glance, you think, okay, well, we're dead in the water here, right? So this is a Supreme Court justice says that I can't possess a sawed-off shotgun. 
and you think, wow, all right, well, this is dead in the water. There's nowhere we can go with this. Uh, but read in a little bit deeper here. Now, some people would say this, this lies in murky water and that it holds. A, it's a weak argument, but one could argue he did make uh, the clarification, right, that because uh, possessing the sawed-off double-barrel shotgun does not have a reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. What is a well-regulated militia? Well, it's not anything to do with the government, right? A you know the National Guard is not a militia. A militia is any man of military age that is not in the military. And so, in order for me to regulate my militia, regulate as in properly arm and equip, okay, I must have access to the same firearms that the real army has or that the military has in order to effectively and efficiently arm my militia, right? So whether or not one wears some badge with their militia logo on it, or whether or not someone even has, let's just say, a group of people they consider to be their little militia or whatever, it doesn't matter. A militia means all military-age males who are not in the military can form an unorganized militia. Militia can be one person or a thousand people. It doesn't matter. So, back up to where you said... All right. The Second Amendment does not protect the possession of such an instrument. Mm-hmm. So in that in that in the vein of that discussion though, right, he's sort of implying that the Second Amendment does protect the possession of firearms that would be used in connection to military use, which would include, let's just say as we stand right now, a squad automatic uh, weapon, you know, a saw, a 240 Bravo, uh, 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 an M16 with a full auto sear and a suppressor, right? Anything the military deems uh, necessary and useful uh, for the uh, carrying out of their duties, uh, whatever they may be. Now, remember, mm-hmm. back in 39, you know, you got to think in those days, we were very, very much still, uh, you know, a frontier army around the turn of the century, right? So the way that military life was viewed overall back then. I mean, now, granted, we had already been in one world war at that point, but the United States traditionally has always been a frontier army, right? Not a occupying force, not a not a force to go out and, and, and conduct tyrannical things against other people, but a frontier army, a defensive unit, right, to the United States, a frontier army. So when you look at it under that vein... There might be a little bit of weight here already, even as early as 1939, just some you know few years after the uh, NFA was actually you know put into existence. So one could say that while the military doesn't issue sawed-off shotguns, and the military certainly doesn't take just some random shotgun and cut the barrel off to whatever arbitrary length and say we're good to go, the military does right have a complete list, an MTO, if you will of random firearms that they do issue and they do support and they do use. Now, now you've already got this potential weight being carried to where maybe what he is saying, right there, right? You know, maybe he is saying that, that firearms that are used in connection with military service are protected by the second amendment. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to read into. So look, just we're, we're bouncing back and forth here. We've got kind of things in line. (laughs) So we stay somewhat, Somewhat organized, maybe a tiny bit. All right, just to kind of reiterate and and uh, confirm what you're saying. And we're going right. down a very long rabbit hole here. We're right. getting into some mental gymnastics, people. Bear with us. All right, so McReynolds was no fan of Roosevelt. He was no fan of the New Deal. So you have to kind of keep that in mind when you're reading through this. And we'll link to all these little articles and such because they're, they're very interesting reads. Um, but McReynolds knew gun control was part of the New Deal program. He knew Miller and Layton were gangsters. He also knew that Miller was a Second Amendment test case, all right? But he barely addressed the Second Amendment, all right? This is in his um, his ruling, okay? Uh, instead, he discussed the nature of the militia and the history of its governance, and he concluded that the Second Amendment does not protect short barrel shotguns because they aren't militia weapons, just to reiterate what you're saying. Right, so um, that's not just my conjecture. These are literally the words from his mouth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Now, when we get into thinking about laws as they stand today, okay, and the folks like, you know, you mentioned earlier, oh, my second amendment, oh, you can't do nothing. Oh, no, shall I be in French? Right, Guilty. There, no, look, there's, there's more to it than that, okay? You can't just stand, 
on the mountaintop beating your chest and beating the drums, okay? The question is, how do we articulate yes. it in so, a way that, that legally gets us ground, gain back that we've lost? So That's what to, we're getting to at. Put, to put modern gun law into perspective, all right, everything that has been passed in modern times, from the NFA forward, all right, the NFA, the Gun Control Act, import regulations, uh, you know, NICS, all right, coming about, all right, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System that you have to go through with a 4473 to purchase a firearm these days, okay? All that was implemented by Congress under what's called the Commerce Clause, all right? The Commerce Clause is what allows Congress to regulate the Second Amendment. They're not necessarily restricting it, but they are regulating it because it is part of interstate commerce. Purchasing firearms is part of interstate commerce. And this could be an entire other video and is well outside of the scope to discuss all the, the minutiae okay, of this topic. But just understand that it is not, it is not a, it's not against the law and it's not against the Constitution for the Congress to institute gun laws. Unfortunately, I don't like hearing that and I don't like saying it, but it right. is a fact of existence in the United States under our legislative system. It's almost sort of a legal loophole, if you will, it that is. they use to infringe on the Second Amendment without infringing on the Second Amendment. And so basically the, the, the argument would be that, well, nothing is stopping you from going into a gun store, filling out a 4473, buying a firearm, and going home, and hooray, you have a gun. And exercising your Second Amendment Right. They're right. not saying you can't exercise your Second Amendment rights. They're saying, well, we have the ability to regulate. This is the how way, you are able to exercise. Right. This is how the barrier of entry for that to occur. That's why uh, they have such a you know, they are so mad about, you know, ghost guns, mm -hmm. which is a bullcrap term, but, you know, Essentially, you know, they don't like people making their own guns because they want to be able to peek under the lid and know exactly what's going on uh, through interstate mm -hmm. commerce. They would prefer you uh, to buy a Smith & Wesson or a Glock or a Ruger or whatever that had to go in through an FFL and this whole process. And another sort of thing, too, they want all that tax money, right? You know, they want all of that manufacturing money, all of those taxes, mm -hmm. tax dollars that they have to pay, right? So if you make a gun... On your own accord, they are now not getting all of that tax money that they would be getting if you bought through a more traditional mainstream outlet. So that's why they hate private sales. They say, oh, the gun show loophole. Well, it's not a loophole. The thing is, is once a gun is on a 4473, it's your property to use and dispose of as you see fit. Now, certain states have different laws. We're not going to get into that minutia because... Mm -hmm. There's so many different things. There's 50 individual states, all of them with their own unique laws and codes and all these random things that are very difficult for your average person to navigate. Um, but what we will say, though, is that generally speaking, in most free states, your product, your your property is yours, mm -hmm. and it's your, and it's you can do what you want with it once it's off the form in your home. That it doesn't matter what you do with it, as long as you don't knowingly sell it to someone you know is not supposed to have it. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing, but it anyway. is. Um, now, regarding like, all right, the NFA, all right, we, we kind of started with that. So, taxes, all right? So, when you register an NFA item, right, you pay a tax, all right? And registry, registering a firearm is supposed to be unconstitutional, I thought. Or no, it's not. A lot of people think that. So, uh, the ATF is prohibited under law from keeping a record of firearm sales. Okay. So a registry. Falls, yeah. So, well, yes, a registry. So like the dealers, okay, you go and you buy a gun, you fill out a 4473. A dealer currently has to keep those records for 20 years. All right. And we've discussed in some previous videos regarding some potential rule changes that the ATF wants to make it a permanent change to where Dealers have to keep those records for as long as they have their license, not just 20 years, but for the length of their license. Yeah. And, and then what, when they surrender the license, they have to give up all the 4473. So the ATF says that they only use it in cases where they need to investigate the transfer of a firearm for maybe criminal activity. It's when or they do a gun cases. trace, yes. basically. But registration, all right, just right here, all right. This is from Heller. Okay, so we're going to be bouncing back and forth between right. some different court cases. But Heller is one of the more recent cases in memory that was considered a Second Amendment win, but 
it had some underlying connotations that opened, you know, like sort of opened Pandora's box, you know, against the Second Amendment as a whole. Um, but all right, right here. This is Heller versus District of Columbia. All right. The court noted that the Supreme Court has yet to squarely address the constitutionality of firearms registration, but it has suggested in Heller that such a requirement is not unconstitutional. The court also noted that several other courts have upheld registration and licensing requirements in the wake of Heller, concluding that, quote, because registration requirements only regulate rather than prohibit the possession of firearms, they do not infringe on the Second Amendment right. Okay. The NFA, as it stands even under Heller, is constitutional as it sits. Now, what may be unconstitutional, and we've talked about this before, is the tax associated with registering NFA items. All right, so let's look at Mayberry versus Madison. All right, right. I think it's right here. Boop. Uh, uh, next one. Boop. All right, so May, Mayberry versus Madison. This is way back in 1803, so this has definitely been a while, but it is a Supreme Court case. Now, I don't know if a modern Supreme Court... Uh, would, you know, I don't know, carry the same weight of such an old case as they would a more modern mm -hmm. case, but right. something to consider here. All law repugnant to the Constitution is void, right? With these words written by Chief Justice Marshall, the Supreme Court for the first time declared a unconstitutional a law passed by Congress and signed by the President. Nothing in the Constitution gave the court this specific power. So here the Supreme Court basically tells us that if a law is unconstitutional, it is void, right? Well, all right. The Constitution is the ultimate and supreme law of the land that even above anything, right? It's above the Supreme Court. It's above everything. The Constitution is the law of the land. So one would argue that whether or not um, the Second Amendment has anything to do with the connection of military service, with the connection of militia service, whether or not uh, the definition of a militia is disputed, the definition of keep and bear is disputed, uh, the, whether or not the definitions within the Second Amendment are disputed or, or Second Amendment scholars argue about what different words mean, mm -hmm. all of that is irrelevant when you look at all of it is prefaced by shall not be infringed. So it's like when you look at infringement, I mean, and you look at all of the amendments to the Constitution or the original, you know, items in the Constitution, Bill of Rights, all this stuff. When you look at that, though, it is the most clear constitutional language in terms of, hey, stay the heck away, right? So out of everything that's in our Constitution, all of our founding documents, all of these, these bylaws by which we say, you know, the government is limiting the power of government, all right? And defining what power the government has, uh, what power the states have, uh, whether, you know, which powers are delegated to states versus the federal government, which powers rest, uh, you know, with the people solely, right? Uh, uh, D.C. versus Heller did, however, determine that the Second Amendment is an individual right. Okay. So if the Second Amendment is an individual right and they're regulating the Second Amendment under interstate commerce, well, what does interstate commerce have to do with my individual rights? Like, so it starts to get hairy. And then you look at the wording in the Second Amendment. It says, shall not be infringed. So that's really clear constitutional language. And I know one would say, but my rights, or shall not be infringed. But the truth of the matter is, Scalia, you know, and the Supreme Court with D.C. versus Heller determined that the Second Amendment is an individual right. So it's an in all right. So we've determined a few things. Mm -hmm. All laws repugnant to the Constitution are null and void. The Second Amendment, paraphrased, shall not be infringed. All right, and that with D.C. versus Heller, that the uh, the the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right. All right, there's mm -hmm. something else that we need to look at. That's pretty mm -hmm. important. Poll taxes. Boop. All right, this is the Virginia State Board of Elections. Uh, versus Harper. Versus Harper. Okay. A Supreme Court case in which the United States Supreme Court found that Virginia's poll tax was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. By this ruling, the Supreme Court banned the use of poll taxes in state elections. So what we're saying here is you can't tax a right. Mm -hmm. all, Just, right. all right. Look, more detail about this. All yeah. right. When you went to vote... <laughs> in you know, in the past, when you went to vote, 
This was also in 1964. So right during the Civil Rights Movement, they were trying to keep African Americans from voting by if, having a tax, yeah. a fee that they had to pay to vote. Yep. So you went to the polling place, and if you didn't, if you didn't pay or you weren't able to pay, which the fee was disproportionate, okay, to minority populations, right? Uh, you know, you were not allowed to vote. They were infringing on a constitutional right by applying a tax okay. to exercise said right. He loves this so much. Here's where I, I love get, it too. Here's where it gets hairy. <laughs> okay, and th- this is where a lot of us are kind of like, "Hey, okay, let's go." Baby. So, all right, when we when we went back in, all right, go back to go back to boop. All right, the court noted that this, and this was DC versus mm-hmm. Heller. The court noted that the Supreme Court has yet to squarely address the constitutionality of firearms regulation, but it suggested in Heller that such a requirement is not not constitutional, and it also noted that several other courts have upheld registration and licensing requirements in the wake of Heller. All right. What is also associated with a registration requirement? Fees. Mm -hmm. You have to pay money, right? So in order to get a, get a, 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 a firearms license... You have to pay a fee. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is a fee. That is a tax. That is a okay. fee associated with exercising mm-hmm. your rights, which we already found there in the original 64 uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruling that poll taxes are unconstitutional and that fees associated with exercising a right are unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're getting somewhere, but that's just scratching the surface. Slowly but surely. So one thing with the Commerce Clause. All right. Congress has often used the Commerce Clause to justify exercising legislative power over the activities of states and their citizens, leading to significant ongoing controversy regarding the balance of power between the federal government and the states. The Commerce Clause has historically been viewed as both a grant of congressional authority and as a restriction on the regulatory authority of the states. Now, we get into states' rights. All right, So, take a place like Illinois, for example, that you have to have a FOID card, a firearms owner's identification card, all right, in order to exercise your rights. You are uh, required to pay these these fees in order to exercise a right within the state. Now, unfortunately, the states, as to this point, have been able to do that under the Constitution because it's never been 100% challenged, you know. So that's a state's states' rights issue. Now, the reason there isn't a federal-level FOID card is because Congress just doesn't have that power under the Constitution in order to do that, from my understanding. Um, That's why we don't have federal-level FOID cards and firearms licensing schemes and things like that that anti-gunners have been trying to push for years and years and years. Regardless of whether or not that particular, let's say a, a a license, a national federal license, regardless of whether or not that would become a thing or not, still doesn't mean that, I mean, at the end of the day, they would do it in pursuance Mm -hmm. to federal-wide, you know, nationwide registration of all firearms. And that's ultimately what they want, is to register all firearms. Mm -hmm. So it's getting hairy, right? You're thinking, all right, now when you realize, okay, you think it's innocent to have to go pay 30 bucks to get a carry permit, but you're paying a fee to exercise your right. Now, okay, do you have to have a carry permit to own a firearm in your home? Well, no. But you're going to be hassled and you're going to be given a hard time or in some situations downright arrested or taken into custody over some stupid crap if you don't have said license. So if the government is going to heckle you and hassle you and arrest you and take you into custody and and deliver some strict line of questioning in regards to a certain thing. That doesn't sound like free exercise of that right. That sounds like a privilege, not a right. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about Second Amendment right or a Second Amendment privilege? Mm -hmm. All right, so so now now we are going to get into some of the inconsistencies, all right, with Supreme Court rulings, all right? And some of the things that have been said, all right, it's been argued that the NFA, all right, the, the fee that's associated with the NFA is not a tax, it's a fee, okay? But in in historical Supreme Court documentation, it is referred to as a tax, just as here in Miller. In any case, McReynolds began Miller by emphasizing the NFA satisfies the Tenth Amendment only because it is at least nominally a tax rather than a regulation. 
Uh, as the government pointed out, uh, even to this class of firearms, there is not a word in the National Firearms Act which expressly prohibits the obtaining, ownership, possession, or transportation thereof by anyone if compliance is had with the provisions related to registration, the payment of taxes, and the possession of stamp-affixed orders. But wait a minute, Chad. You can't tax a right. So what? where is there the consistency? Right. We'll be seeing you. So now, to be fair, okay, that whole Harper versus uh, Virginia... Right, that didn't happen until 1964. This was way before. This was th actually 30, almost, yeah, almost 30 years prior mm -hmm. that this was determined, right? So if it's already been determined that that in, nothing mm -hmm. within the NFA actually says you can't own this if you pay this fee, and then two, in 64, they determined that paying a tax, right? It was a polling tax, mm -hmm. not a polling fee, mm -hmm. not a... Uh, administrative fee to cover paperwork or whatever guys they want to put it under. No, a tax, a polling tax is unconstitutional. Right, well, we're getting in some murky waters here. So mm -hmm. if I have to pay a $200 tax stamp, I have to pay $200 to exercise my right, it doesn't pass constitutional purview. It doesn't even, it doesn't pass the purview of uh, the way that the Supreme Court has ruled in the past. So you start to muddy the waters a little bit, right? So basically what they're telling me and what they're telling you and everyone else who wants to own, let's just say, an item that's covered under the NFA, suppressor, mm -hmm. short-barreled rifle, uh, short-barreled shotgun, machine gun, so on and so forth, right? What they're telling you is it's not illegal for you to own that. You can own a squad automatic weapon, okay? You can. You can own a machine gun, Right, you can own anything you want as long as you got enough money to buy it. All we're saying is you have to pay the piper, you have to pay a fee, right? So that's what they're saying. They're not saying that owning a machine gun's illegal. They're not saying that you can't have it. There's nothing saying that the guise of the NFA is to prohibit the possession of these items. All they're saying is you pay that two hundred dollars, right? So. Basically, they're extorting you. They're 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 fleecing you for this money, and that's what's crazy mm -hmm. about it. It is how can people not see that this two hundred dollar tax, which they call a tax, is unconstitutional? Mm -hmm. Now, look, uh, just one one minor detail uh, just to consider is that with nineteen eighty six May nineteen eighty six with Firearms Owners Protection Act and the included clause to remove newly manufactured machine guns from the availability of civilians to register, purchase, register, and own, all right? So, 86 was the last time you could purchase a newly manufactured machine gun. Now, uh, in current times, newly or uh, uh, previously manufactured machine guns uh, are very, very high-dollar items. I mean, they're considered investment-grade items because they're tens of thousands of dollars, typically, even on the lowest Entry level end, you're still going to spend, you know, between seven and ten thousand dollars for one NFA item, which is a machine gun. All right. So a lot of people would argue that the FOPA clause to regulate machine guns out of possession of civilian ownership uh, is wholly unconstitutional because because you can own them. Because it, it doesn't prohibit uh, uh, them. No, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't prohibit them. And that's the that's the point. <laughs> it's just right. it, it's asinine to think that, all right, we don't want any new machine guns out there, but you can still purchase all the ones that were made prior to this date. You just can't have any new ones. Well, in that sense, they are infringing on your Second Amendment right, even though your rights are already being regulated within the NFA. So adding new things to the right. NFA is really a further infringement. Uh, okay, now, look, here's another instance of taxation with the NFA. All right, so Miller, the defendant here, all right, could not argue that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to possess and use NFA items. He had to claim that it prohibits taxation of NFA firearms. He was claim, you know, had to claim that the Second Amendment as a whole prohibited the taxation of NFA firearms. Unsurprisingly, McReynolds found this claim unconvincing. Whether or not the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms, it hardly prohibits Congress from taxing particular weapons. Now, further on in this in this article here, uh, you know, it continually 
refers to the taxation of NFA firearms. Taxation, not the fees associated with. So anyone who argues these days that the $200 tax on an NFA firearm is a fee and is completely constitutional is 100% in the wrong because it has always been referred to as a tax. Even from the in inception of the law itself, it has always been a tax. But polling taxes were not deemed unconstitutional until 1964. This was, he came up with these ideas way before. This was almost 30 years prior to that. So it, it raises some interesting questions, right? So if polling taxes are legal, why aren't NFA taxes illegal? Dare, dare we say even the NFA period, right? So that's that's weird to think about. And let's let's get into one tiny other little thing. Right? Uh, I've talked to a couple. Now I'm not a lawyer, and Chad isn't either, right? But I've talked to a few lawyers that are buddies of mine. I'm not going to give out any names here because I don't want to, you know, back them into a corner on this. But I asked one of my friends. I was like, hey, you know, why hasn't this been challenged in court? Why? What is it going to take for us to challenge the NFA? At a very minimum, challenge the tax, mm -hmm. challenge the fee, challenge the registration in court as being mm -hmm. unconstitutional. At least that, you know, if not removing the, the entirety of the NRA, why can't we do this? And his response to me was, well, it's going to take someone getting arrested for that very specific thing, and then we're going to have to take it to court and battle it out. And that's an interesting point. Okay, you think, everyone thinks, all right, well, NFA, you know, you've got this Oh, uh, a guy walked into a shop and he's got an AR-15 lower with a short, uh, you know, upper on top, and he's got an illegal unregistered SBR. And everybody goes, "Oh my God, the sky is falling!" Oh, you've got this widget A or widget B, or you got a forward grip on a pistol. You're the devil. You're 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 gonna get put below the jail and all this stuff. And and somehow we're conditioned as a society to think that there's some boogeyman in a corner looking at every little tiny move and that, you know, you make one wrong step, you're going to fall into the traps of some evil prison for the rest of your life. But the truth of the matter is, well, think about it. Out of all these years of NFA stuff and all these things going on, you know, how many people have actually been prosecuted? You know, and that list is not very big, right? All right, and let's think about recent situations, right? That gentleman out in California, okay? Joseph Rope. Fill him in on right. this. So this happened in 2019. All right. So this gentleman was, he basically had a machine shop and he was taking 80% receivers and he was setting them up and he ran a program. And instead of him manufacturing these items, okay, he would have customers come in and push a button Ooh. and he was not manufacturing it. They were just simply using, like renting his facility in order to manufacture uh, their 80% firearms. Um, so the feds arrested him, okay? They raided him and everything like that. So five years, all right, listen. So five years after raiding his business and indicting him, federal authorities quietly cut a deal with Roe and agreed to drop the charges. Why, Chad? The judge in the case had issued a tentative order that, in the eyes of prosecutors, threatened to upend the decades-old Gun Control Act of 1968 and seriously undermine the ATF's ability to trace and regulate firearms nationwide. This has to do with what is the definition of a frame or receiver, which recently the comment period on a proposed rule change uh, you know, has closed with like 269,000 comments, I think, was the last number I saw. Yeah. Um, but when have you ever known of a federal agency to refuse to prosecute someone? Why would that ever happen? Why would someone not get prosecuted? Mm -hmm. Because... They knew that it didn't hold water. So that's very interesting. And it would challenge current laws. It would challenge current law. And they didn't want to have a court case that would challenge, uh, basically reiterate what they already know. See, they know that an AR receiver is not a firearm. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Not it, by the old school definition. It's not. You know, not in the gun control. And, and they know that, right? So they know. So that's what's, that's what's kind of weird about it. Mm -hmm. So again, on this NFA front, all right, look at the bump stock ban. All right, we all greatly disagree with Trump's, you know, position on uh, banning bump stocks, right? Well, we see that that fight is still ongoing. 
and that, you know, there's some strong potential that they're going to go, oh, that ain't constitutional because a bump stock is not a firearm. It's, it's not, well, it's not a machine gun. And it's not definitely not yeah. a machine gun. So that's the big thing. That that's kind of gets into some murky water. So, mm-hmm. again, you know, all right, when you see all these things that are going on with uh, NFA and all, how many people have actually been arrested for possessing a bump stock? Okay. How many people have been arrested for possessing a short-barreled rifle that's not registered in recent years? Just for that purpose. Only for that one significant, specific purpose. We're not talking about, you know, tack on crimes, you know, where somebody's arrested for robbery or assault and they happen to have an illegal firearm. Right. It has to be a case where they were solely arrested for a violation of the NFA. Right. How many people... Have been specifically arrested for a for that one specific violation of having a rifle barrel too short, a shotgun barrel too short, possessing a bump stock, or dare I say, even possessing a, let's just say a machine gun that's not on the registry. Mm-hmm. Who has actually been arrested and prosecuted for that one specific thing? I mean, I don't know the answer, but the question is, all right, that's where we lie right now. That's the bed that's made, and that's where I believe where this whole thing kind of comes to a head mm-hmm. is, all right, can we challenge the constitutionality of the NFA? We can. Is it, is it, is it going to be completely gone? Probably not. Is the NFA mm-hmm. going to go away? Probably not. Is the ATF going to go away as an agency and, and everything? Probably not. But, all right, mm-hmm. are there going to be concessions Right? Are we going to gain back ground? Or, mm-hmm. you know, possibly could we see short-barreled rifles and shotguns and suppressors removed from the NFA? Quite possibly. Could we see the $200 tax stamp become not a thing anymore? Possibly. Mm-hmm. Now, is that good enough for a lot of us? No. We want to see the NFA gone completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on board. Believe me. I get that. Will it happen? Then? But will it happen? And... You know, all right, could that stepping stone, let's say removing those items from the from the registry, from the NFA, removing the tax stamp requirement, the fee associated with the, um, exercising your Second Amendment right, okay, could those two things be stepping stones to eventually, mm-hmm. you know, the Fed's going, all right, you know what, this is just bullcrap. Let's just do away with it and, and, and concentrate our efforts in a more uh, productive manner. Mm-hmm. All right. So look, and one that is constitutionally valid, one that actually you know honors and respects the Second Amendment rights of everyone. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know the the way that the current legal system and the way the current legislative system works, you know, is just goofy as hell. But all right. So look. All right. Now you guys remember you remember the the two gentlemen that got arrested in Kansas a while back for. One one was selling illegal suppressors, all right, and then one guy purchased an illegal suppressor, all right. Now, Kansas had passed a law basically nullifying federal gun control laws and federal NFA laws, okay, in the state of Kansas. And Texas recently uh, passed a law similar to this, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, like, if it's made in Texas and it stays in Texas, then you're good. But the federal government has come out, all right, the ATF has come out and said, that regardless of state laws, federal law still supersedes state laws in matters of firearms and like NFA and such. So I was curious as to what the result was of them being indicted on these charges. And um, they were put on probation and had to pay a very small fee. Okay. And that's it. That's it. All right. So the government's not stupid. All right. They know that if something does come about and there is a court case that opens up these floodgates, that a lot is going to flow through and it could be very damning for current gun laws as a whole. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned, is the NFA ever going to be repealed? And my belief is likely not. Now, could the tax ever be challenged? Yes. Could the tax be removed? Potentially but then you'd still be required to register those items because it has been found, unfortunately, and we're just, this is just pure data, guys. It I hate it, but we're just giving it to you as real as we can. But it has been found in Heller that registration is not wholly unconstitutional. 
because it is regulating firearms, not restricting their ownership, okay, under the Second Amendment, which sucks. And although I, I love Anton Scalia, and I think he was a, a great champion for the Second Amendment, he did leave some gaps in Heller that All allow right. for some of these new laws and regulations and things to come down the pipeline and be defended on the level of the courts. I'd like to, you know, we'll, we'll go completely to modern times now, and we'll talk about Amy Barrett a little bit. Okay. So, Amy, you know, a lot of people think that Amy's comments, you know, she, she says that she basically dissents back to Scalia's view on the Second Amendment and his previous, you know, Supreme Court ruling and everything like that. Yeah. But if you read into it, I had an article pulled up. I don't have time to go through it all because it's, it's a heck of a lot of information. But what Amy is getting at is that, yes, there are reasonable restrictions that can be applied to the Second Amendment, but under, that, under the guise that the Founding Fathers' original intention was that, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you commit some heinous, terrible crime, you can't take your gun to jail with you. Mm -hmm. There has to be some standard by which, I mean, yeah, if you commit some terrible, heinous, cardinal sin crime against humanity, well, then, yeah, you you don't have rights anymore. Like, yeah, so to say a reasonable restriction, well, is it reasonable that a mass murderer, criminal, rape, homicide, whatever person should have access to whatever gun they want? Well, I think it's reasonable to say that, yeah, you don't want that person armed in your society if they committed these terrible, heinous, you know, felonies or whatever, right? So violent crimes, mm -hmm. you know, against, that has an actual victim, someone who is dead or, or, or in a very traumatic, terrible state as a result, right? So that's the thing. Everybody reads into Amy Barrett's comments, I believe, in the wrong way. She refers to Scalia because Scalia, Scalia was like one of her, you know, mentors, you know, right? But, you know, she's not saying that she supports <laughs> restrictions on the Second Amendment. She's saying that reasonable restrictions exist and that those reasonable restrictions are a very finite and small list of very specific things that probably any person on planet Earth would think, okay, yeah, you don't want this person having a gun. Not that Second Amendment uh, restrictions of any type, uh, you know, anyone could just say, well, I think it's reasonable to run them all through a wood chipper. That's not what she's saying reasonable. Of course, now, we know some people are not capable of being reasonable. Mm -hmm. We also know that some people are not capable of rational thought, of, you know, actually diving in and finding the details and really getting to the bottom of stuff and doing their own research and, you know, getting the facts themselves and weighing out every single side of the, of the argument and the situation in a way that's fair and honest and forthcoming and logically consistent, right? You have to remember, we assign these people to the, to the Supreme Court because they're the most brilliant minds we have, right? We are relying on them to be our hearts and minds and, and to be our brilliance, right? Like we're relying on these people to fairly and concisely judge situations with the overall holistic uh, view of Americans in mind, not just one side or the other, right? The Supreme Court is not a political entity. They don't take political sides. They shouldn't. Mm -hmm. But you saw back in 1939, mm -hmm. even though, all right, he knew the New Deal was going on. He knew that firearms regulations were a big part of the New Deal. He knew that gangsters were a problem and they wanted to set a precedent. So one could even argue that under the, the, the vein or guise of why the Supreme Court even exists and the nature and, and you know, <laughs> the way that they're supposed to conduct themselves, that even that 39 case was not conducted in the fullest bipartisanship well, that it probably should have. So the Supreme Court, although it is made up, obviously, of Democrats and Republicans, typically, right? You do have sides in the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, as its core, is supposed to test the constitutional muster of laws and cases that are presented to it. So the Supreme Court is the ultimate you know, deciding factor whether or not the laws of the land are constitutional or unconstitutional. Um, but, like I said, when it comes to the NFA specifically, as you know, what this video is about, 
will we ever see it repealed as a whole? And as I mentioned, likely not. Does it mean that we should stop pressing for that? Should we stop pressing for things like a renewed Hearing Protection Act, like we almost got passed through the House many years back? Should we press for those things? Absolutely. We should never back down on our you know, want for less regulation against the Second Amendment and gaining back some of the ground that we've lost for many, many years. So, Mayberry versus Madison, yet again, mm-hmm. a re- law repugnant to the Constitution is void. All right, let's look at, or I'm going to pull up the Department of Justice here. Section 242 of Title 18 makes it a crime for a person acting under the color of any law to willfully deprive a person of a right or privilege protected by the Constitution or laws of the United States. For the purposes of Section 242, acts under color of law include acts not only done by federal, state, or local officials within their lawful authority, but also acts done beyond the bounds of that official's lawful authority. If the acts are done while the official is purporting or pretending to in the act of performance of his or her official duties. All right. So, one could argue, you know, does the DOJ even have the authority to levy taxes, right? So, all right, is the DOJ a taxing authority, right? So, the NFA used to be under the IRS, Mm -hmm. and then around 9-11, they got lopped into the DOJ because that would indicate possibly a mission change, a change in mission, Mm -hmm. a change in goals, a change in the overall holistic way that they approach these things. Mm -hmm. So, they are not a tax-collecting entity, but they continue to collect taxes and levy taxes, so are they acting under the color of law and with no real, you know, authority to do so? I mean, that's a question for the ages. That's a question for the lawyers. I, I'm certainly not going to pretend to act like I, I know, but that, you know, it's just it just leads too much in the open mm-hmm. that needs to be looked at. You know, some good lawyers need to put their heads together and figure out how to attack this thing and make it go away. You may not be able to kill the whole beast with one uh, sword swipe, but you might be able to chop one of the heads off of the beast. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I know one thing: it's going to take people a lot smarter than we are. <laughs> right, but but it's important. It is for us to put these things out there, and and maybe people, mm. you know, have not thought about these things, or or maybe they think that it is such a far stretch for it to go anywhere that it's never going to gain any steam or gain any momentum or get any support from people or that people are so have their head buried in the sand. You know, they just want to be uh, told what to do. They don't want to think for themselves. And maybe, maybe they just think, well, enough people have their head buried in the sand and they, they want to go about their everyday thing. They want to do this all the time and just everywhere they go. And they don't want to actually think about the real and meaningful change that could come from challenging these things in court. So, are uh, are all gun laws, you know, infringements on the Second Amendment? Yes, they are. All right, but that's my feeling on it, and it's many people's feeling on it. But as we've heard in the past, and you know, we've likely said in the past, feelings really don't matter. Okay, what matters is the way that the law. And the Constitution kind of coalesce and the interpretation of those laws within the bounds of the Constitution and the ultimate authority of interpreting those laws is the courts. Well, the thing is, all right, we're going to end this gun gripe. I know this has been a really long one, but we really wanted to put these things out there so people can kind of think a little bit about it Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, might change your point of view and, and get people talking. That's the thing is to... Develop a dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. You know, understand the concerns that you have because, mm-hmm. you know, it is. Yeah, it's, you think of the audacity that someone would have to want to pass laws that infringe on your rights. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so scary about the whole situation, right? And, all right, it's a double-edged sword. Just like, okay, the feds didn't want to prosecute that guy mm-hmm. and let it go to court because they were risking a potential, you know, court case that would not go in their favor the same applies in our situation, right? We got to be careful how hard we push and what we push and when we push it. Time is of the essence and the situations and political environments are of the essence. Mm-hmm. 
And we have to be careful what we push for, because if we go, all right, we stamp our feet and do all this and go, all right, we want this to go to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, and then only to have the Supreme Court go, well, it's not, um, it's not politically, it's not a politically, uh, you know, level environment enough for us to even think about this right now. It's interesting. You look at all the First Amendment cases that have gone through the Supreme Court, tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. There have been mm-hmm. very few Second Amendment cases that go through the Supreme Court. And why is that? Why is the Second Amendment a second-rate right? Mm-hmm. Kavanaugh said that. All right? So, you know, right there, you've got two Supreme Court justices that we have to assume they do very much want to hear, and they have expressed uh, wanting to hear more Supreme Court cases related to the Second Amendment. So we'll see. You know, it's it's will the NFA ever go away? Probably not, but this is food for thought, and I hope you will understand. I mean, I know this is a long video. We went through a lot of things, a lot of mental gymnastics going on here, um, but we're going to include some of these links here. Um, go through and read some of this stuff on your own. It's actually very interesting. A lot of really cool stuff, and it goes into a little bit more detail uh, than what we went through here in the video. But um, that's always been sort of the argument and basis that 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 I present uh, when it comes to you know whether or not hey can we move on the NFA, and that's my answer. So whether it's the right answer, whether I've covered all the bases, there might even be more Supreme Court cases that I'm not even aware of that might support. Uh, my position even more, you know, so I would really hope that some, you know, lawyers will get together and might make this thing work. Who knows? But FBC, that's right. (laughs) FBC, where you at? (laughs) Yep. So um, guys, thank you so much for watching today's video. I know it was long, but I really appreciate you sticking with us if you're still here. Um, Big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, those of you who purchase man cans. Also go over to Ballistic Inc. Pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt. We got a bunch of them. There's a bunch of t-shirts. Some of them might be a little dicey. That's right. You know, oh, yes. Spicy. Very spicy. Spicy t-shirts. Um, and big thank you. So all of the funds we earn from those go right back to supporting the channel. So thank you so very much. Have a great evening, great day, where whatever you might be. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, right? And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.